This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephan Cox. Today, as part of our town hall series in partnership with the Washington Indivisible Network and Indivisible Tacoma, we present two Democratic candidates for the state legislature from the 42nd Legislative District. Join us for a conversation with Alicia Rule and Representative Sharon Shoemake. This conversation was recorded live on the evening of Tuesday, August 11th. Hello, everybody. Welcome to tonight's Indivisible Town Hall. My name is Stephan Cox. I host the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. Before we start, a big thank you to Kat Pipkin with the Washington Indivisible Network and Julie Anjievsky with Indivisible Tacoma. And a huge thank you to Doug Brown and also Kevin Leja. And especially thanks to all of you for joining us here tonight, whether you're joining us live or are listening via the podcast or you are listening on one of the terrestrial radio stations here in the state that carries the podcast. And a special shout out to KMRE in Bellingham. So glad to to have you with us tonight. So tonight we are going to be speaking with two candidates for the state legislature in the 42nd legislative district. This is a district that includes Blaine, parts of Bellingham, Linden, Lummi, Everson, and Ferndale. And you know, before we start, I just want to stress that the, the 42nd represents a real opportunity for Democrats, both to protect a seat and to flip one. Both of the candidates that we're going to be talking to tonight had very close primaries with their Republican opponents. So they are going to need all of our collective time and energy to get them up and over. So with that, let us meet our candidates. Alicia Rule is a member of the Blaine City Council. She is also a small business owner and community volunteer and is the past president of the Blaine Downtown Development Association. And she is running for representative in position one. Sharon Shoemake is currently representative for the 42nd District in Position 2 and serves as the Vice Chair of Rural Development, Agriculture, and Natural Resources Committee. She also sits on the Energy and Environment Committee as well as the Transportation Committee. In her professional life, she is a professor of economics and energy policy at Western Washington University in Bellingham. Alicia Rule, Representative Shoemake, thank you for taking the time to join us tonight. We're so grateful to have you here. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Representative Shoemake, let's start with you. If you would, just kindly introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about your background uh, and a little bit about some of your key achievements during your time in office. Yeah, so you did a great job with my bio. Um, My specialty is environmental economics and kind of transportation economics. Um, So it's really nice being on those two committees. And my PhD is actually in agricultural economics. So it's kind of the third committee, which is really fun. Um, I'm a real believer in ideas and I'm a real believer in ideas, especially that are backed up by data and evidence. Um, I got tenure a few years ago, and when I got tenure, I was suddenly looking around thinking of how I could impact my community, right? How I could make things better. And the idea was that maybe I could take some of the lessons that economics does in the environment and apply them to water rights in the Nooksack or figuring out better climate policy for the county. Um, I ended up running for office. That wasn't the plan. (laughs) Um, And I ran mostly because I was, I found out my state representative didn't believe climate change was real. And so if that's where you're going to stand on something that's there's a preponderance of scientific evidence there, um, I, I wasn't especially knowledgeable about politics. I love policies, but if, if you're if you're not going to stand up for climate change, um, fine. But if you're going to deny it, then what else are you denying? What other bad decisions are you making that I also can't trust you on? Um, and so that was kind of a, a reason to jump in. Um, also, nobody else wanted to do it, so. I think sometimes when nobody else wants to do something, the people who may not have always seen themselves as qualified go ahead and do it. And so that's why I ran for office. We won. Um, It was super exciting. 
since then in Olympia, I've been working on policies to cut carbon emissions, to um, help out some of our farmers, and also policies to ensure better access to childcare, especially um, those early learners that are just so, it's so crucial to get that right in those early years. Well, thank you for all of that. And we will certainly circle back on the climate and child care. So stay tuned for that. Alicia Rule, uh, I would love for you to take a moment and introduce yourself. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background, uh, some of your personal achievements, and how you feel they prepared you for the job of representative. Hi, yes. Thank you so much. And thank you for the excellent introduction. I currently serve on the Blaine City Council, where I live, and I own a small business in Bellingham. I have a private practice. We serve the mental health needs of children, youth, and families in our community. Um, I am a lifelong social worker, and I am looking forward to the opportunity to use it to use all of that background together with the small business experience that I've earned in the uh, city council role, as well as the social work piece. Um, I think that both of those things are going to be incredibly important as we move through into through this crisis and into recovery. Well, that's a perfect transition for me because that's where I want to start tonight. Uh, I want to talk about the COVID response on a couple of fronts, uh, both on the public health front and also on the economic front. So, Alicia, we'll start with you on this. Um, because of rising COVID rates in Whatcom County and across the state, Governor Inslee, we know, has paused the phased reopening until further notice. And I'm wondering what your assessment is of the state's response to the pandemic thus far. And are there areas that you feel that we should change our approach? Um, well, you know, I'll be honest, I'm really frustrated in general with where we're at with COVID. Uh, I am literally on the border and I see Canada right over there within stone's throw and they seem to be back doing a pretty functional um, life right now and we're not. And that is extremely frustrating because what it tells me is that we could have done better. And I think that I look directly to our federal administration and say, why didn't you prepare us the way that we needed to be prepared? I specifically think about our frontline workers, our healthcare workers who are our neighbors, our friends, you know, these are just regular moms and dads like me and you, and they go to work and put their life at risk because they're not able to get PPE. This is just ill-prepared and unacceptable for uh, really the country. And I'm really proud that our governor has taken swift action to protect us and keep us safe, um, particularly around keeping our workers safe and keeping our numbers down as much as possible. I think, you know, you can do what you can do given the circumstance. And we just didn't have what we needed to be equipped for this. Uh, and it's making our recovery, our economic recovery, and our health risk just drag out in a way that didn't need to happen here. And New Zealand has been without a COVID case in over 100 days. So this was more preventable than we are experiencing. And I'm frustrated about that. We will get to the economic aspect in just a moment. So hold that thought uh, while I turn the question over to you, Representative Shoemake. Um, your assessment of our state's response to the pandemic so far, are there areas that you feel that we should change our approach? And I say this with the recognition and understanding that the the pandemic started to ramp up at the end of session. And so I, I'm, I'm interested in your assessment from that vantage point. Yeah, towards the end of session, we took a bunch of money out of the budget stabilization account that's a rainy day fund, and we put it towards COVID. And it started off at one number, got increased, and then it doubled again, right? And so it's still looking like there may not have been enough money for that. Nobody really understood 
how it was going to hit us and what the ramifications would be. Um, many of the other things we wouldn't have predicted. Um, I, and I really don't envy the governor's position right now. The way I see it, what we've had to do is we've had to basically rework our entire way of life based on this new rule of not being within six feet of each other. Right. And so that's going to be really different in every single industry. It's going to be different in different businesses within the same industry. Right. And so when you're working out all these rules, um, a, a lot of people have been hurting and it means that what well, I think one of the things that's happened that's been unfortunate, and I don't know if the governor could have prevented this, was that the people who had the lobbyists were kind of heard first, right? So we saw that residential construction was opened up earlier than a lot of other things. And that was because the building trades were able to get together with the business lobbyists, which was great. That was great working together and go to the governor and come up with a plan. And so sometimes people think that the most valuable thing in Olympia is fancy dinners or whatever, but it's, it's access to information. And they were able to take that information, go to the governor's office, have it vetted by his staff. Um, I think another thing that happened that is really unfortunate is when we talked about things that needed to stay open, obviously people need groceries and they need to get food, but that meant that Walmart and Target were open when our small retail was closed. And so I think that if we thought through that a little bit more and taken a little bit more time to think of how can small retail adjust to COVID, maybe you have someone inside with an iPad and then outside delivery, even during the phase one, um, we could have been a little bit more friendly to small businesses and especially the downtown core that really makes some of our communities up here in Whatcom County so special. And let's go ahead and continue on that thread right there, because I want to ask your opinion on the economic aspect a little bit more. You're, you're, you're uh, talking about it. You're starting to talk about it here, but you've been appointed to the state's business recovery legislative task force. So I, I'm curious to know what are some of the steps that you and the task force are preparing to take to help restart our economy um, in, I mean, January is obviously a long ways off and things will change between now and then, but what are some of the things that you have come up with as part of the task force? Yeah, so the, the, before we start to that, the, the first rule of virus economics is you get over the virus as quickly as possible. We saw this in the 1918 pandemic that a quick shutdown um, that was sustained resulted in lower deaths and it resulted in a lower medium to long-term impact of the virus on the economy. So they looked at the cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul and Minneapolis had a, you know, they're just across the river from each other. Minneapolis had an early sustained response. St. Paul didn't. Minneapolis saw fewer deaths. And when they went back a year later, they didn't see an economic impact on Minneapolis, whereas there was still a recession in St. Paul. And so the, the smarter policy is, I mean, we're talking about something, the virus is an exponential growth curve. That's really hard for us humans to understand. Um, and so if you can get that earlier rather than later, then you have fewer deaths, but there's no real trade-off between human life and economic growth. We saw even before the shutdown orders that the economy was already starting to go into the toilet because nobody wanted to go out to eat when, we're, when there's a deadly virus out there, right? There were a whole lot of other businesses that people just didn't want to access because it was dangerous to their health. And so... The stay home orders, really what they did is they helped coordinate those efforts and make sure that everyone understood what the new rules were. Um, as for the recovery task force, a lot of what we were trying to do is augment the governor's response, kind of be a, a new conduit. So he was able to hear from the people who had the lobbyists that knew how to get to the governor's office, but we were able to hear from constituents. And so some of the things that we worked on were trying to figure out some more flexibility for our mayors and our county executives on what funds could be used for what, right? If they have 
they they were also suffering from a lack of revenues. And so could we be allow them to be a little bit more flexible in those packages? Um, some of the things that came up were, you know, unclear, like florists, right? So a florist working by themselves in a shop, delivering contact lists to someone's front porch, is that something that could be allowed? And I know some florists were operating, assuming that it was could be allowed, but it, there wasn't really clear guidance on that. So we kind of worked on a lot of those policies like that towards now what we've been, um, one policy that's really dear, near and dear to my heart is we've heard about um, some of the supply chain problems in meat processing. So we already have, we already had some bad policy in terms of meat processing because a lot of our small organic grass-fed growers, they would have to ship their animals down south to be butchered and slaughtered instead of being able to do it locally because some of the rules. And so we had this Washington State Prime Act that we tried to get passed last session and it didn't get through. And so we might be looking at CARES Act money to try and get that through. And I'm really excited about providing these kind of local food options that maybe bypass some of the supply chain problems. Um, since then, we've also been trying to make sure that everyone understood in the legislature and the governor's office everywhere that there isn't an economic recovery without childcare. Um, if your kids don't have a safe place to go, um, I know that's going to be the next question, but that's also an economic question. That's also fundamentally a recovery question. The rest of it will also be looking at, well, what are ways that, what are places that we can cut and what are potential new sources of revenue that we might be able to change and bring into that. And that's still an ongoing discussion that the legislature will be, probably be deciding on um, next session. Well, as you say, it really does touch on so many aspects of our civic lives, including childcare, which yes, indeed, we will get to in just a moment. Uh, and certainly, as you say, the imperative is to get the virus under control first. And so with that in mind, Alicia, how would you see yourself working to help individuals, small businesses uh, in the 42nd that have been impacted by the pandemic get back on their feet? Well, I do agree with Representative Shoemake that our small businesses are a critical part of the 42nd district. We have uh, we have a preference for small business because of the character in our downtowns. Uh, we see that in each of our downtowns in our small cities, as well as we see it in, in our larger city, which is, of course, Bellingham. And it's incredibly important that those small businesses are able to have an opportunity to be successful. And uh, again, some of our federal aid that we expected to come through for our small businesses was really disappointing and left them behind. I am also a small business owner. And uh, you know, we many of us run on thin margins and we don't have a lot of room for something unexpected like this. Um, we saw some of the larger fancy steakhouses getting this economic recovery money for small business and then we had, you know, our local retail shops who were not able to be open, and it made no sense for them to be open, frankly, at that time, without getting any aid. So we still are going to be continually recovering. Our restaurants are still struggling. They're only able to safely have people outdoors or 50% capacity. All of those things make sense for our health. We need to do them. They make sense for our long-term economic situation, as exactly Representative she makes just laid out for us, but they're going to need extra help. So I really look at um, some of the stuff that I did on the Blaine City Council. And we built a downtown here. And the reason we did that is because when I ran for office, I knocked all the doors in town. It's not many, we're a small town, but not just the Democrat doors, every door and talk to people. And what I heard resoundingly across the board is we're tired of driving to Bellingham for the things that we need. We would like to be able to live in our own town. 
And of course, at the time, I had no idea about how to build a downtown. But what we did was we took all the stakeholders, pulled them together and worked as a team in order to um, really vision what we want for our community. And we're, we've, we've done it and we are doing it and it's still happening in spite of all of these challenges. And I think many of those same ideas can be used in a Main Street program that would be statewide. And I would really support that because I think small businesses are our friends, our neighbors, and uh, really kind of the dream of having their own business. And we need to be able to support that as many, many places and as many ways as we can. You know, uh, Representative Shoemaker, since you did bring up child care, let's move there next. I know that both of you are proponents of increasing access to child care and, and lowering the cost. And we know that this is an important issue right now for working families, working individuals with children during the pandemic. So maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the work that you've done in the legislature on this front and then a little bit about some of the things that you would like to see get done. Yeah, so um, the economics of childcare are really incredible. Um, for every $1 we spend, we see about seven to $9 worth of benefits. It's good for kids, it's good for parents, um, but we also see that it saves taxpayers money in the long run because when you teach a three-year-old how to sit and listen, kindergarten teachers tell you that they can tell the difference between ones that have been to preschool and ones that haven't been. Um, and those kids, they end up costing less in K through 12 because sometimes you can get it special. Um, you can get it um, disabilities early and you don't have to spend as much on special ed later in the K through 12. And we see that those kids that have access to high quality childcare, um, the, the early learning, um, they're less likely to be imprisoned later on in life. And so it's not just, you know, incarceration is ridiculously expensive. It's more expensive to put someone in jail than it is to send them to Western. Um, and so the extent that we can save money on that, like, yay, but it's also a real moral problem that there are people that are incarcerated and having this continuous interaction with the criminal justice system because they didn't get that access that they needed when they were young. They didn't learn how to sit and listen when they were three. So there's some incredible economics to it. If you look at where we're spending money on the state, we're clearly not spending enough money on this. Um, so I, I've been kind of trying to push the state along, always saying that every $1 we spend, we get about 7 to $9 worth of benefits. It's a long-term cost saver, but it is that long-term, and politicians aren't always good at thinking through long-term questions. Um, I specific, I, one of the first bills I passed was ensuring that student parents have access to childcare. There was this onerous work requirement um, that just wasn't working if you're a full-time student and a parent to have to work so many hours per week. We got rid of that, and so now they can access subsidized childcare. When one of our largest childcare providers in Whatcom County was about to go under, I made sure we had over a million dollars from the state and emergency funds to keep that from happening because this wouldn't have just impacted those kids, but also those parents and all those employers. That would have been very destabilizing to our economy here in Whatcom County. Um, speaking of kind of rural issues, I passed a rural childcare access bill with um, a lot of our caucus and the Democrats are, you know, from the Puget Sound area. And so the problems that happen in rural counties don't always filter down to that caucus. And so that's one of the reasons that I think it's really important to have some rural Democrats as well. And so we passed this child care access bill to try and fix some of those problems. Um, and then generally just making it a priority. It's one of the best investments we can make. And 
really, if we don't get those early years right, then it's harder to fix later. And saying that again and again to my fellow legislators, legislators, that really does have an impact on where the money goes in the budget and where those negotiations go, where we put our values and what we spend our money on. Because three-year-olds, let's face it, you know, I talked about the importance of lobbying and hearing from people. They don't usually have lobbyists, right? We have nice people like Anna to come down and talk about early learning and the importance as a parent, but we don't always see those kids lobbying for their resources. So either that or we get a four-year-old pack. But um, until then, I'm going to be there advocating for early learning. I like the idea of a four-year-old pack. I think that's great. Uh, Alicia, I know <laughs> that this is... Cute. Yeah, it would be very cute. Uh, Alicia, I know that this is absolutely a top issue uh, for you. I will also note that you are the mother of, of three and you recognize how important child care is. How do you see the role of the legislature in helping families and individuals with child care? Well, I think childcare is critical and, and it's really easy to see because frankly, we can't work if we don't have childcare. And I'll be the first to tell you that as a mother of three, um, man, you know, I love having the kids around because I love them so much, but it's, just, it's challenging to work. And I know that's true. And I'm in a privileged enough situation to be able to work at home. And so if we're talking about economic recovery, we cannot possibly talk about economic recovery without having a plan for our kids. It's impossible. So when we're ready to move forward, how we move forward is going to be dependent on how we take care of our youngest. And don't you think that's also uh, says something about who we are as, as a, a nation and as a state as well? How we take care of our children says everything about us. Absolutely agreed. And, and thanks uh, to both of you for that. We'll shift over now and talk about the, the transition to a green economy. And I want to talk about this in the context of Alcoa closing the Intelco work smelter. This resulted in the loss of 700 uh, workers being laid off. Representative Shumake, I'm going to put this to you. You spent your career as an academic studying how to simultaneously grow the economy and cut carbon emissions. So I think your thoughts here are enormously valuable. How do you see the bridge to saving jobs like these and also making them greener? I mean, the Intelco curtailment was really a, a double, triple punch. Um, we just spent about $2 million in the legislature um, funding some energy efficiency improvements that saved carbon dioxide emissions at a ridiculously low cost. It was a really good investment, even with this early closure. It was still a lot cheaper than a lot of other ways to cut carbon. Um, and this wasn't a result of carbon policy, the Intelco curtailment. It was more global markets and the price for aluminum falling um, so that the Intelco plant just couldn't compete. And then Alcoa also has not just this one plant, but they have a number of plants around the world. And so they didn't want to keep this one smelter open at the cost of some of the other smelters. So there was kind of some difficult conversations we had to have with Alcoa corporate on that. Um, I, I think that in terms of the environmental policy, what we need to do is we need to make sure that our policies are giving us the biggest bang for the buck in the environment. So we did everything that we could at the state level for Intelco, and I'm still working with a group of similar firms in Washington state that are energy intensive and then trade exposed nations, right? Or trade exposed companies. Um, so just like Alcoa, just like Intelco produces aluminum that, you know, you could buy from abroad or you could sell abroad. Um, we have some other industries that do the same thing. And so anything that we do to increase our energy prices or change our energy policies might make them less competitive. And so we need to think that through especially if it's going to be a result of now we're importing something that's actually dirtier than what left, right? And so economists call this leakage. Um, and so I've been working with this group of EITEs in the Department of 
energy intensive trade exposed companies um, and the Department of Ecology to figure out that we're accounting for the fact that these are relatively low carbon emissions products that they're producing and that we have a flexible policy. Because here's the thing, when we've looked at the more flexible policies that economists recommend, we often find that we get better environmental results than we expected and at a lower cost. And one of the best examples of this is acid rain. We don't talk about acid rain anymore, but it was a big deal in the 1990s. And that was mostly because we solved it. One of the ways that we solved it was a cap and trade system. And so everyone was expecting, so a cap and trade system means that there's a certain number of permits that you're allowed to get to produce SO2. Um, and then you can buy more or sell more, sell some if you have extra. And so everyone is expecting the price of that permit to be about $300 per ton. Um, there are even like car washes and Duke University Law School like was buying one to retire it as like an environmental move. And they bid 300 bucks. The price ended up being about 30. And so everyone thought that that was a bad story because, oh my gosh, it's not working. The price is too low. We're not punishing the polluters. But actually that was a great story. It meant that it was costing us a 10th of what we expected to cut these SO2 emissions that were causing acid rain and also particulate matter because we created a flexible strategy that worked, that had environmental impacts, but also allowed firms to go and figure out the most cost-effective thing for them to do instead of someone at the EPA or someone at the Department of Ecology saying, you have to do it exactly this way, you have to use this filter, and you have to fill out 400 reams of paperwork to ensure that you did it right. Instead, what we need to do is we need to put the incentives in place and make sure that companies can figure out how to do it and then invest in even better, cheaper ways of doing it in the future. And once you unlock that, protecting the environment is a really good deal. This is something that we could spend the whole evening on, and obviously you, you've taught courses on this, and I, I appreciate you taking uh, the enormous complexity here and being able to uh, make it uh, digestible in the course of a couple minutes. Thank you for that. Uh, Alicia, I know that one of your top priorities as a candidate is to create more of these living wage jobs in your district. And when, when we spoke in preparation for this, you said that you feel the middle class is endangered in the 42nd. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about why you feel that is so and what you would do to create and keep well-paying jobs in your district. Yes. Well, something we haven't yet talked about is that I'm the my children make up the fifth generation in my family to live here in Whatcom County. So my great-grandparents immigrated here from Holland and we have deep roots in this community. And what that means is we also are spread pretty wide throughout pretty well all of the parts of this county. And so I do understand very well um, sort of the diversity that we have here. And I respect that um, things have changed. So when my great grandparents came here and my grandparents were here as farmers, it was not an easy life. These, these were brave decisions for them to come here and immigrate here not speaking the language, but they came here for a better life. And they did that because the farming was good. So farming is difficult, but they were able, they had access and they were able to use hard work to further themselves economically and have a quality of life that allowed them to you know, own some property and take care of the land and have their family. But as time has gone on, that has become less and less. And as of recently, very drastically and quickly has changed. So when I think about folks now even, and I especially think it's true when I look forward uh, to my children and the next generation, will they have jobs accessible to them that are going to be able to pay the kind of family wage, living wages that it takes for our pretty expensive housing market? Uh, we know the path to home ownership 
is getting more challenging as the days go by. So I really think that in this district, it's incredibly important that we make sure that there are opportunities for jobs um, that not only pay, but pay a living wage. And I think a lot of that comes from union jobs. And I think we can do a really great job of marrying this with some of our goals um, with climate change and being able to address that. So whether it be green manufacturing or other new jobs, when we can work, we, we can make partnerships and work together like we've talked so much about before. Um, when we bring people together for a shared goal, we don't have to even share the same political beliefs. We can say, look, we've got some new jobs that pay really well. And by the way, the market's changing and heading that direction. So let's make sure that we create good living wage jobs so that the middle class is a possibility for our next generations. And you mentioned affordable housing, which is also one of your top issues. I believe it's the first thing that comes up on your issues list on your website. This is such an intractable problem, intractable problem here in the state. And you brought to my attention that it is the case in the 42nd. I'm wondering what you feel is at the root of this problem and what can be done to address it? Well, I really do feel like this is, none of these problems are separate from one another. They all intersect with each other. So when we talk about jobs and we talk about housing, they, I believe that they go hand in hand. Uh, we can't have one without the other. So I, I believe that this is sort of the American dream. We're talking about the middle class. Is there something different than, than what I'm thinking about, which is like, we imagine we can work really hard. And then if we work really hard, we'll be able to buy a house and raise a family or whatever we choose to do. I think we're getting to a point where that's not even a possibility anymore. And frankly, everybody deserves to have a warm home with a roof over their head and a place that they can feel safe and secure and not have to move a lot of times. And we are not immune from homelessness in the 42nd district. In some of our rural areas, it looks different here because we have um, folks who are kind of couch hopping. But if you talk about children, and again, our next generations, we're talking about an instability that doesn't allow them to thrive, and certainly not their parents either. So we have to fix this math equation to be able to create opportunities. And I think this is the primary, uh, really the primary role of the legislature, to be able to create opportunities for people to live a, a good life and to thrive here. And that means having opportunities for living wage jobs that match up with the ability to be in a home that's safe and stable. And then I would also add, taking care of the, the land around us so that we can enjoy some of the beauty and wonderful quality of life that comes with living in the Pacific Northwest. And certainly hold on to that thought because I'll have some follow-up questions about the climate for you as well. Representative Schumick, I'm gonna, I may get out of my depth here a little bit. Um, from an economist standpoint, it would seem it's that, that the housing crisis is a supply and demand issue. Uh, is there more to it than that? Can you talk about that and, and then some of the work that you've done to try to address this? Yeah, um, so it, for every 10 new households that have formed, so that's people moving out of their parents' house or people coming to Washington State, we've only built seven new homes. And so it's this game of musical chairs where the price is what the seventh wealthiest person can just barely afford, right? And I think that almost exactly describes what a lot of us are seeing out in our communities. We need to build more homes. We kind of stopped in the last recession. Um, we have this, we, we, we haven't had enough since then. Um, and we need to build new homes in a number of ways. I'm kind of an all of the above approach. Um, so one thing we need to do is we definitely need to build more affordable housing. Um, there's a comment in the text saying that there's not enough affordable housing for the people that qualify. Um, we did put more money in the housing trust fund. We heard that need. There's probably going to be a population for a while 
that may not be able to afford affordable housing because of disability, because of inability to work, whatever. Um, and it's cheaper to house them than it is to deal with the consequences of homelessness. And it's kinder and better. And what nice people do is we take care of the people that can't take care of themselves or have a hard time taking care of themselves. Um, for other people that can't afford market rate housing, we have to make sure that it's available. So we're not bidding up the few homes that are on the market, right? So we've seen this big divergence between land costs and um, housing costs. And it's not just because homes are getting more expensive to build. It's because we've restricted the amount of land that people can build on. Um, we've said that there's only certain places and that we've said that there's also, we're not allowing people to build up in places where it might make sense to build up. And so when I talk, I teach a class on urban economics. I'll be teaching it next fall. You guys are all welcome to come in. Um, I don't know if Western will allow that. But, um, so um, one of the things that we see is um, when we restrict how many homes you can build on a lot, it means that, first of all, that our cities are flatter and that we have to drive more. We have more transportation. We're using more land. We're taking up farmland, which is also potentially in a crisis right now. We need to preserve the remaining farmland we have to make sure that this is still a place that you can do farming here in Whatcom County. Um, but it also means that we're not allowing for economic diversity within a neighborhood. And so I live in the lettered streets. Um, I like to talk to people about land use as I can walk to 11 breweries from my house. It's just north of downtown Bellingham. Um, it's a lovely neighborhood. I knew it was the right neighborhood when I saw that the stop signs had like been yarn bombed, right? Like it was kind of weird, had cool gardens. Like um, I really love where I live. And one of the things I love about it is that it was built before zoning was ever even a thing. So my house was built before the first zoning laws, which were in New York City to regulate the height of skyscrapers. It is not a single family zoned neighborhood where all the houses are in the same part of the lot, the same distance from the street. I wouldn't even be able to build my house according to the zoning laws today um, because of the setbacks. And so we've just made it too difficult to build things. Um, I would welcome four plexes and six plexes in the lettered streets. And so I think sometimes people, they worry that their house will have to then turn into an apartment complex. And that's not what we're saying. Um, we're saying allow people to have some more options on what to build on their land, especially in the city centers where that is the environmentally friendly thing to do. It's friendly to families. It provides economic opportunity. And frankly, I know my neighbors and they watch out over me and we, you know, now we're messaging each other on Facebook, but it's community as well. Like I, I really love living here and I wish more people could have this opportunity. And I hope that this doesn't just become a neighborhood for millionaires because that's not what I wanted to move into. Somewhat related to that is a question about water rights. And this came up uh, on from a number of people. And this uh, has to do with the 2016 Supreme Court Hearst decision, which changed how counties decide to approve or deny building permits that use wells for a water source. Um, this is an enormously complex issue. And it, uh, the fallout, is my understanding, is that it has made securing permits for property development or even digging private wells very problematic. It's pitted a number of parties against each other. I will ask you, uh, Representative, as vice chair of the Rural Development, Agriculture, and Natural Resources Committee, how do you frame this problem and how do you see the legislature's role in helping resolve it? Yeah, um, so I think of this as a need for um, water banking. So that was one of the things that I was thinking about doing once I got 10 years, I'd go out and work on water banking. Um, and if we had water banking, then it means that people who can conserve water, now they have a financial interest to do so because they can sell some of their excess water rights. And it also means the new farmers who are doing something innovative and new, but maybe don't have water rights because they haven't been 
farming there for four generations, they're able to go buy them from someone. So there's a lot of things to figure out on how to do that. Um, but if we can get the incentives right, then it means that some conservation happens where it needs to happen, that new people are able to buy into the system. And that usually when we've seen this happen, um, people who do want to build in the rural areas, they are able to get water rights for pretty reasonable prices. And Walla Walla, it's about $2,000 when you build your house to get lifetime water rights for that. And they buy it from a water bank from upstream. So that's not like nobody's excited about $2,000, but that's not going to stop you from building your home. Well, Alicia, I'll turn this to you. You know, on the face of it, it seems to me like this is a legal matter and a county issue. So I'll just ask you how you see the role of the state legislature in potentially resolving this issue. I do think this seems to be almost an age-old problem, and I would really like to be able to see adjudication for it immediately. (laughs) That's really what needs to happen. This is a problem that needs to be solved. Let's shift over and talk about a biggie, which is health care. Uh, according to recent figures that I uh, recently discovered from the Office of Financial Management, some 700,000 Washingtonians have been thrown off of their health care coverage due to the pandemic, and mostly because their health care was tied to their employment. Uh, Representative Shoemake, we'll start with you on this. Uh, you support Medicare for All, so I'm wondering how you see here in Washington a pathway to universal health care for all Washingtonians. Yeah, um, so the first thing we did was the Cascade option, the Cascade Care, which is a public option that people will be able to buy onto in the fall. Um, That will be cheaper than the private options out there. It'll bring some of the private costs down just because now they'll have someone else to compete with. Um, People will have that better option. And so they'll have to figure out how to stop gouging you and making it so annoying to access your healthcare. Um, I'm a cautious person and especially a cautious person when we're talking about billions of dollars on the line. So I really like this step-by-step approach. Um, I'd like to see how cascade care kind of falls out. Ideally, Frankly, um, healthcare would be something that the federal government solves. And maybe we'll see that if there's a change in administration and a change in the Senate. Um, But if not, Washington state is going to be on a path to do something statewide. And that'll be through Cascade Care. Alicia, I wonder if you see things the same way. How how do you see a path to access to healthcare for all Washingtonians? Well, I think we have to acknowledge that anybody can get sick at any time. And it's never anybody's fault. Um, it is, it is incredibly stressful to get diagnosed with an illness. And I saw this with my dad who had cancer to get diagnosed with an almost insurmountable problem and have to deal with the medical bills at the same time. This is, uh, really an inhumane approach to this. I think we've made some really great strides with the ACA and I think we need to keep going. We are not done yet. And we need to be able to see that everybody has access to affordable care so that when they're diagnosed with something difficult, they can focus on getting well and being healthy and not have to worry about mounting medical bills. I have an audience question about mental health care. Um, And this is certainly related to health care because I think that there are gaps here. Uh, Arlene asks, will you support the funding of mental health gaps? And she says, prompt emergency or family counseling care. Alicia, you are a mental health professional. So first of all, maybe you could explain what is meant by mental health gaps and how the legislature can address something like that. Yes. So I'm a lifelong social worker. And what that means is we do clinical social work in all kinds of places. Sometimes that means we're doing that in the community. Uh, Sometimes we're working in in my career, I've worked with nearly every population. So I've worked in the homeless population. I've worked in, you know, um, child welfare adoptions in schools. And currently I have a small private practice. So I've really seen 
the full gamut of mental health care. And what that means is that there are different levels of service for different needs. And we currently in Washington rank 48 out of 50 states in mental health care. This is unacceptable because we're just doing great in so many other areas. Um, we need to be able to make sure that folks have access at every point of the system, whether it's prevention um, and education, or it might be a 50 minute sort of traditional therapy session, or sometimes people need inpatient care. Uh, right now, that's many of these things are not accessible to a lot of people. And sometimes we've got folks who are chronically mentally ill and they're gonna need lifelong support. We have, I think, a moral and ethical obligation to make sure folks have access to those things. But I also think these are really economically smart things to invest in. Because again, these are not separate issues than a lot of the other issues that we've talked about elsewhere, including housing and including um, you know, incarceration prevention. All of this stuff ties together. And if we're missing a big piece, which is the, these gaps that she's talking about in mental health care, uh, then we're missing an opportunity to invest in our community in a way that can really be much less expensive than some of the ways that we're doing things now. Most importantly is we have the ability to help people get better. Mental illness is not something we don't understand. We know what we need to do and we know how to treat it. We have to have the ability to do that and we've got to be able to work to, to better our mental health care system in Washington. Representative Shoemake, we, we got a follow-up question on this, and, and certainly anything you'd like to add to what Alicia just said, but uh, Anne, Anna just asked, I would like to see mental health services for children be easier to get. Would you like to address that, Representative? Yeah, I can say that one of the things that we put in the last budget was putting more counselors in kindergarten, in, in elementary school classes. Um, I had a meeting with some teachers from Blaine um, where they talked about the lack of counselors and services. And I mean, it, like I was in tears by the end of that meeting. Um, this isn't, this is something that we got to do a better mommy. job of. I love you, mommy. Love <laughs> <laughs> you too, kiddos. <laughs> you want to say hi, Judy's? <laughs> I love you. Hello. How's it going? I'm just eating some grapes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I love you. We talked about the access to childcare. We need to fix that so that women can work. Let's go. <laughs> oh my god, that was wonderful. I loved that. Anyway, Representative, I I'm kidding. <laughs> when 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 you're uh, when you're ready, uh, please continue. I I think I got. I think I said um, we we need to access in elementary schools, but. Also, one of the reasons I'm so excited to run with Alicia is that she knows these issues inside and out. And so anything that I would say on mental health care, um, Alicia could probably say better and with more knowledge and more experience. Well, then, uh, Alicia, I'll give you the opportunity to address that. Um, do you see a way to make a mental health services for children easier to access? Yeah, we need to be able to access these services for children because, again, what we do with our kids is what says everything about us. And if we've got kids with anxiety and depression, all of these things were at crisis level before this pandemic ever hit. And now we know that they're in homes, they're not in school, and there's some mounting stress. So at the very least, I think it's our responsibility to make sure that these families who are reaching out for help can have access at whatever point in that system they're at um, so that they, we can treat these kids. I also want to talk about the issue of equity in our education system. Uh, Alicia, when you and I were pre uh, preparing for this, you mentioned that many schools in rural districts, in rural parts of the 42nd, are underfunded. I'll ask you, how would you like to make sure that every child has adequately funded schools in the 42nd and across the state? 
Well, one of the things we know is that it shouldn't matter where your what your zip code is. You're across Washington State, our children deserve to have equitable education. And we know that's not true. It has been true for a really long time, but that's certainly becoming very clear as we're doing a lot of remote learning and we have to talk about access to broadband. Um, I'm thankful that my internet connection right now is working well, but it's spotty at best. Um, and so I know we'll talk about that later, sure. but that's the first thing that comes to mind is we just can't expect, we've got kids in my district who are getting paper pack packets to do school right now. Well, so then, uh, Representative Shoemaker, I'll give you the opportunity to talk about that as well. And, and certainly we will get to the broadband uh, issue um, in depth. But in considering the question about how to make education equitable for all children across the state, are, are there more things in your mind that we need to do? Yeah, um, Alicia really nailed it. Um, I always say that thing about the zip code, too. So that shows what a good team we are. Um, I, I think something that the legislature is doing right now. So we had McCleary. Um, now we're we're supposedly funding basic education, but there's still a discussion as to what basic education is, right? Is basic education just math and reading or is basic education also the things that a child needs to really thrive in school? Is it so social and emotional learning? Is it the add-ons? Is it access to a counselor? Are these also parts of basic education? And these are gonna be discussions that we're having as a legislature and especially in the education committee. Let's go ahead and talk about broadband uh, next because it touches on so much. And, and Representative Schumick, this is something that you and I got into in detail when we were preparing for this. I mean, it, it touches on education. It also touches on uh, the needs of small businesses. Uh, people who work from home now need it. And, of course, there's also telehealth. Um, right now, the 42nd has a number of broadband deserts. What do we do to make high-speed Internet available for, for everybody? So in the legislature, we need um, some local partners that we can fund. I tried to get some money to the Port of Bellingham last session. It didn't fit quite with the messaging, um, but that's going to be one of the top things that I want to do is expand the broadband all the way to Blaine. Um, we also need to look at what the Whatcom Public Utility District is doing right now. They have a lot of power to do some really great work, and in Skagit, they have been doing that, and up here in Whatcom, we really haven't seen that. So that's also on the ballot, and I'd really encourage people to look out and research the candidates there and ask about broadband and what are the opportunities for that? Because I think, like we spoke about before, telehealth, education, um, small businesses, a lot more people could locate here if they had access to really good internet and then spend money in our cafes and our tourism, et cetera. Alicia, same question to you. And I, I have a feeling you're going to uh, echo a lot of the sentiments of Representative Shoemake. What would you like to add to that? Yeah, this needs to be a public utility, just like people have access to electricity and water and Sewage and plumbing. This is a, a basic need at this point. It is incredibly important for all the aspects you mentioned. Small businesses, working at home, telehealth, and our kids. The last question that I have for the both of you before we get to a couple of one-on-one -on -one questions is about the nature of running in your district, in running in the in the 42nd. It is a it's a fairly purple to trending red district. And uh, Representative Shoemaker, we'll start with you because you've won there. What are some of the challenges of running as a Democrat in the 42nd? Um, I think it's really fun. <laughs> it's, it's, it's quite the district. The loudest voices are super liberal or super conservative. And from the loud people, there's not a whole lot of people in between. 
But if you go out and you talk to people and you knock on doors and you hear what people care about, um, most people want affordable housing. Most people want health care. They want good schools and to protect the environment. Um, I saw a question in the chat about systemic racism. Um, people want us to solve systemic racism. They might come with different slogans on it. Um, defund the police, don't defund the police. Um, but when we talk about the actual policies there, there's a lot more to agree on than the slogans would have you believe. And they want us to go do that. Um, I really very much believe that we, we have the people on the edges that are already clued in and know who they're gonna vote for, right? So we're trying to make sure that our people get out. Um, but the other thing is we need to get our message out to the people who maybe politics isn't the first thing on their mind. They may not realize they have a state representative. So often I call them or I would knock on doors and say I'm running for state representative and they would start talking to me about Congress, the federal Congress, and have no idea that I was the person that was working for them in Olympia, which is fine. I probably was like that in 2015. Um, frankly, that's what normal people are like. Um, and so it's it's getting that message out. And I really believe that a message of good schools, of affordable health care, uh, affordable housing, affordable health care, um, good paying jobs. I mean, that's a message that wins, right? Like a message like let's use data and evidence to make decisions, not ideologies and being anti-mask because someone told me somewhere that masks are bad, right? That doesn't win elections. What wins elections are good governments and people who make decisions based on evidence. Hold that thought because I have a I have one of our one-on-one questions coming about that. But before we get to that, uh, Alicia, I'll ask you the, the same thing. What are some of the challenges that you are encountering running as a Democrat in the 42nd? Do you agree with the representative that there is more to agree on uh, than not? I think so. But, you know, I have to say one of the things I do in my day job is marriage counseling. So it's... Uh, <laughs> It's not uncommon to see two people who think they have nothing in common come in and say, what do we do because we want to solve this problem? And all kidding aside, that's what we need to do. We need to turn toward each other and we need to start solving our shared problems. And because I have you know, so many friends and family from a variety of backgrounds, in this district, I really know it well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I know all of its goods and all of its bads in all of its idiosyncrasies. And because of that, I feel really proud of my work on the Blaine City Council. We have a variety of council members from every political spec part of the spectrum you could probably know. Uh, we don't have a whole lot of overlap there, but we've been able to solve a lot of problems. We face our challenges together and we've found some opportunities together and we do not always agree. But what we do is we listen to one another and we've agreed either implicitly or some of us just really have disagreed about a topic, but we've agreed that we are going to put the community first. And when we put the community first, we always come up with solutions that win for everybody. And I think we need to do the same exact thing in Olympia is let's serve the community. And if we can serve the community first, the rest becomes clear. You talked about uh, being a bridge builder when the two of us spoke in preparation for this. And I, I have a feeling that's what you're getting at. And I, I will just ask you as a follow-up, building bridges can require compromise. And I think people who are progressive can often hear compromise as being another way of saying, you know, we're giving into the intransigence of the GOP. So I will just ask you, how do you build bridges, get things done, while also standing firm on core values? necessarily see it that way and I'll tell you why my grandparents in this community raised me and they raised me to believe that we work hard and we stick together when things get tough and we don't leave people behind and we look after each other 
And I think those are shared values. And I know that's a bold statement to make in the political climate that we're living in right now, but I actually believe it's still true if we're able to look at each other and have conversation, which we're not doing well right now, we can see that there are some things that we have in common that don't compromise our values because maybe our values are more shared than we're talking about. If we, if we put values first, we look after our most vulnerable. And I think many of us, not all of us, many of us will agree on that. And we make sound investments and we create opportunity. Those are things that we can agree on. And I think we can do that without compromising our values. In fact, we can make really good, solid decisions that are values first. Well, you know, in, in addition to that, one of the things that you told me was that uh, you said there are lobbyists in Olympia for so many concerns, but there are a lot of people in your district who don't have a quote unquote lobbyist and you would like to be their voice. And I would just like to know uh, for you to tell people who specifically are you referring to there and how would you like to be their voice? You know, in my work, I work with the most vulnerable people and the most vulnerable people are just like us. It could be us on a bad day, any day of the week. So whether it's something that's happened like a trauma, either um, sexual assault or child trauma or an illness, an accident, maybe living with a disability, any of the things that make people vulnerable at a certain moment are things where I walk in when other people walk out. And when you're having your hardest day, it's, it's us as social workers who show up and we help you through that to the other side. And I've seen people do well because of this. But what I know is for better or for worse, it's usually not warranted. A lot of these times, people's hardest time comes with some shame and they don't want to talk about it. Or maybe it's just exhausting to recover from it. So I come to the legislature with stories. And these are real people, real faces that are really just like you and me. And they don't have lobbyists and they're not going to come to Olympia to talk about it. But I would like to be able to go into our capital and start solving some systematic problems that could have prevented some of these things or made them much less harmful and damaging. Uh, and that's something that I would really be proud to do. And I think that many people in our district would value. Representative Shoemake, when we spoke in preparation, you mentioned that you would like to make the legislature more accessible to people and you would like to encourage people to really engage with it more. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I was thinking about that. And um, I realized that when I decided to become a, when I entered college, I thought that professors were just wizards that had to be born into being a professor or the geniuses of some sort. And I used to think the same thing of politicians is that they had to be born into being a politician or the political class or, you know, some sort of genius leader. But um, I just ran because I was mad. And um, so I, I think that we should be looking at, especially the lower races, um, you know, running for governor, if you don't have any experience as a vanity project, right? We all kind of giggle at good space guy. Um, and so, but the, the legislative races, the city council races, there's often races on the ballot that don't even go, they don't go to oppose. And sometimes there's not even people signing up for them. And so the council has to appoint people. And so we really need to be looking at those lessons because those are still really important decisions that shape our community. Um, one of the things that I also think that I didn't understand in, you know, before I joined the legislature is the importance of lobbying your legislator and communicating with them, because that's how we make these decisions. We hear from people and we really take in your stories. I don't have the lived experiences of everyone in Whatcom County. I don't understand everyone's jobs. And so if you can get that information to you about why a law is important or why it needs to be changed, then we can work together and make that better. And I always think about the story that I told um, when we were discussing this early on is 
Um, one of the first issues that came up when I started at the legislature was raising the age that you can buy tobacco to 21. And I'm, I'm an economist, right? So I'm really not a nanny stater. Um, to a certain extent, I don't want my kids to try it until they're 35. But like, I, I don't know if I want to tell grown adults what they can and can't do. Um, but some high school students came in and they told me the reason why it was important. And they said that when they're in high school, they often know someone who's 18 or 19, but they probably don't know someone who's 21. And so when we're looking at tobacco, where what is really valuable is getting people not to smoke in the first place, that's where we get those gains in reducing death and disease from tobacco. Um, keeping it out of the hands of teens and keep, keeping it out of people that are under 21 actually has some pretty big public health benefits. And so because I heard that story and that the reason that it was important to these students, that was why I voted yes on that bill. And so lobbying your state rep, I mean, you may not get me to like vote against climate change or I mean, maybe if it's a bad bill, but you may not get someone to completely flip on some of the things like abortion and um, but some of the other bills, we're not experts in everything. And so coming out and telling us your experiences and why something is going to make your life better or worse is really, really important. I couldn't agree more. And thank you for sharing that. Uh, and I want to thank both of you for your time. We are just out of time at this point. And so I want to close with a question from Rod. And this will dovetail on what I began this evening by saying, which is we have a real opportunity here in the 42nd to uh, protect Representative Shoemake's seat and to flip the seat uh, in favor of Alicia. And so Rod wants to know how people can most effectively help your campaign. Uh, Representative Shoemake, let's start with you. We are doing a lot of phone banking. Um, so we love to have you come in and do some phone banking with us. Um, I don't know what else we'll be looking at for the general. There might be some postcard writing, but I'm not sure that's as effective as direct contact with voters. Okay. And is there, I know that Kat published this in the chat bar, but since radio is an audio medium, can you please tell us what your website is? Yes, it's Sharon, S-H-A-R-O-N the number four and then whatcom.com. And you can email me directly, Sharon at Sharon, the number four, whatcom.com. Sharon Shoemake, Representative Shoemake, thank you so much. And uh, Alicia, you will get the final word tonight. How can people be uh, effect most effectively helping your campaign? This is obviously a unique time to be campaigning right now. So what uh, sort of help are you looking for? Well, you know, I never imagined I'd be campaigning as a challenger in a pandemic, but yet here we are. So I think some things stay the same and some things change. We have to adapt. We know that in-person meetings with a whole bunch of people right now is really not an option. So direct voter contact is the part that stays the same. And I agree with Sharon, it's gonna be best really if we can have as much direct voter contact as possible, that's safe and that's phone banking. But really for me, it's gonna be all of the things because people don't yet know who I am. They know me very well in Blaine, but our district of course is much larger than that. So I think it's whatever you have to offer, whether it's postcard writing or uh, phone banking, text banking, or even a financial contribution so that we can buy and, and get some literature out there. Uh, all of those ways will be important for us to get our word out. And what is your website? Uh, www.votealiciarule.com. That's V-O-T-E-A-L-I-C-I-A-R-U-L-E.com. 
Thank you again to Alicia Rule and Representative Sharon Shoemake. Thank you also to Kat Pipkin with the Washington Indivisible Network and Julie Anjievsky with Indivisible Tacoma. And that is it for today. Our website is indivisiblepodcast.org and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.